Welcome to the Archipelago of Designs Tension podcast series. My name is Philippe Boulieu-Brossard and I am the co-executive president of the Archipelago of Design. In this second episode, we are going to unpack the core tension between military design on the one hand and civilian design on the other. Indeed, they may rely on similar underlying principles, but their different contexts of application changes everything. On the one hand, military design aims at developing novel strategies and operations, as well as organizations to preserve relevance or gain an advantage against the test of time. And in contrast, civilian design methodologies aim to develop new products or services to increase competition in a market or provide better services in the public sector. And in between, indeed, where they meet best is when addressing organizational challenges. Uh, we can think about health services, for instance, conduct or uh, recruitment. So today uh, we are fortunate to receive a panel of leading experts, both representing military design methodologies and civilian design methodologies. Representing military design, we have Jeffrey Van de Vier. Jeffrey is a planner at the G5 of the Bundeswehr Joint Force Operations Command, based in Hamburg, Germany. We have also with us Ben Zwabelsen, who is the Program Director for Design and Innovation at the Joint Special Operation University, based in Tampa. Representing the civilian design side, we have Professor Philip Cash from the Danish Technical University. And we have also Robin van Horschwitt, also a professor at the Danish Technical University. And to represent both sides at the same time, it's my pleasure to have Nathan Schwagler, who is the co-founder of the Daily Museum Labs, and he is now a leading instructor at the Joint Special Operations University, together with Ben Zweibelsen. Hi, I'm Ben Zweibelsen. I'm an American, retired infantry officer, and I'm currently a doctoral student at the University of Lancaster. I, uh, I teach design. I do design theory. I'm really excited about design, particularly in military and security contexts. Uh, I also am the program director for design and innovation at, at the uh, Joint Special Operations University that provides education to the U.S. Special Operations Command, as well as Department of Defense and International Militaries, where I am there as a contractor. And uh, anything said during this podcast uh, that I happen to remark, of course, are my own private opinions and do not reflect government. Okay, follow that. Uh, <laughs> my name is Philip Cash. I'm an associate professor at the Technical University of Denmark. I work with design thinking and designer behavior, particularly in the engineering context. And I also work with uh, behavioral design or design for behavior change. I'm Jeffrey Vanevier. I'm a uh, Dutch colonel uh, working as a J5 planner in the German Operations Command and have been bringing in design into the Netherlands establishing into the major scores, taking it along to Germany, trying to get something move over there. So we'll see about that one. Hello, my name is Nathan Schwegler. Uh, I teach with Ben at the Joint Special Operations University, but as he mentioned, uh, sharing perspectives and opinions as an individual practitioner. So a, a contractor providing facilitation services for the military, both within the United States Department of Defense, as well as international uh, allies and partners around the world. By trade, and, and probably the perspective that I'll be bringing to the table today is from a, a creativity theory perspective. So individual level and team-based creativity and how that ladders up to affect organizational thinking. Yes, and my name is Robin van Oorschot, also from the Netherlands. And I have a background in product design, not so much in engineering, but more the 
artistic fluffy side of design, so to say. Uh, right now, I'm working at the Technical University of Denmark at the Entrepreneurship Department. So where I'm looking at today, how can you bring design ways of working and design ways of teaching into entrepreneurship? Excellent. Thank you so much. So just to get us started, what is design thinking from the perspective of your profession or from your personal perspective? And what makes it unique in your profession? Want to start? I would say design thinking is a slightly abused term, perhaps. I mean, there are three or four distinct themes of design thinking and different schools of thoughts. Like there's the American, the more European, and there's sort of military design thinking, obviously, which share some commonality in dealing with uncertainty and being flexible in the face of kind of radical innovation demands. Uh, they share that iterative nature of working through not just a linear process, but kind of iterating with more like a sprint mentality. And they also share principles of reflection and development in that regard. So from my point of view, design thinking is very much about the thought process and principles that underpin design, especially when you're dealing with very uncertain, unknown goals, particularly. And you are in, that, in contact with both engineers and architects. So is it different? Do you teach different design differently to the engineers uh, in comparison to the architects? Or do you teach exactly the same thing to, to these two audiences? I attempt to focus on underlying principles of design and then more or less leverage the different perspectives that people bring with them by distilling out then the core principle that can be a good way to show commonality uh, and also to help engineers to understand what the architects are up to and the architects to understand what the engineers are up to and where the sort of commonality of thinking can be. Um, and particularly because I teach professionally design thinking as well, and that covers a huge range of fields and disciplines that people come from, it's quite important then to sort of focus on more. It's dealing with uncertainty, it's the flexibility, it's the uh, take action and then pivot kind of processes rather than the one size fits all methodology that can just be delivered. Excellent. And what are your thoughts, Nathan? So from your perspective, what is design thinking and does it really matter in what kind of profession you are using? So I've had the, the good fortune of being able to, as you mentioned, practice methodologies, a wide range of them. As Dr. Cash mentioned, you know, there's different ways of thinking about practicing design and it shows up differently in different cultures, different methodologies, tools and techniques work differently depending on the population and the problems that you're working with. So the principles are steady. The psychological and biological drivers of the thinking and the cognition are steady. But it's the sloppy human behaviors and the poor habits that we bring to the table as flawed humans that give us requirements to shape our processes differently depending on what we're trying to accomplish. So what that looks like in an undergraduate entrepreneurship course, which I used to teach, um, is similar to your experience, is going to look differently because you're trying to identify an interesting problem with a big enough market segment so that you can develop a value proposition and then prototype it and bring it to market in a way that you're de-risking it and, and sort of bringing on capital and growing an organizational structure along the way versus designing a building where you're going to communicate with engineers and, and architects and, and thinking up concepts that at the end of the day have to serve a user, but you have a multi-stakeholder perspective because the city is going to care and the building materials are going to have limitations in terms of what they can accomplish. And the engineers and the lawyers, and so many people are going to care about different things that design becomes uh, critical and that you must be able to empathize and, and appreciate the different perspectives and the problems and, and value propositions that are required in order to make that to life in the world. And then in a military context, they've got very specific and security-driven requirements where human lives truly are on the line, epistemological confrontations and just 
at that level, you, you encounter these really multifaceted problem sets. I think that's why design is taking on such an interesting, or why there's such an uptick in appetite for military design or design applied in military context, because it's not just a tool, not just a methodology, but a way of seeing the world, which provides us perhaps a little bit of light at the end of a tunnel of a very long series of conflicts that have had no meaningful resolution. What we see, like uh, both um, Dr. Cash and, and yourself mentioned principles, and that the principles are steady; they don't change if you go across different discipline, professions, and, and all that. So, could you give an example of principle that resonate in, in the corporate world in conversion to the military world? I think right off the bat, when you look at the, the body of knowledge around personality psychology, is probably an interesting entry vector into this because we we're just talking about architecture. I think architects have an interesting connection to this. But in the 1960s, at the Institute of Personality Assessment Research uh, at Berkeley, I think the guy's last name was Barron, trying to figure out who the most creative profession was in the world. Interestingly enough, architects, by and large, were the most creative profession. And I thought that was interesting because when you think about the requirements, what it takes to be a great architect, they need to be able to see around corners, to pull the future into the present, uh, to sketch these concepts and communicate that vision. Uh, to a to a financier or, or an organization that will capitalize the build out of this infrastructure project, but then to then understand and craft an experience for people who are going to use that space, while also acknowledging and considering the limitations of the building materials and all the things, all the effort that's going to have to go into that process to create that thing. Just an extraordinary range of creative leaps I think you have to make to be a successful architect. And I think I'm a huge fan of personality research by and large. I think it went through a, a ten or twenty year dark period of sloppy methodology but there's the big five is the general consensus model right now five relatively stable personality constructs one of them is considered to be openness to experience how open are you to the world around you how willing are you to move your personal experience of the world around you into spaces that you've never had before felt before known before so uh robin what, what kind of principles for you uh what is design thinking in in your Yeah, I find it interesting what you are mentioning about architecture with architecture because I have my uh, education in product design. That's something very interesting like that you have all this openness and this look at the world, talking with users and stakeholders. And ha how do you then translate to actually making an order? That's what I find one of the biggest challenges in design thinking. It's like, okay, you can do the whole thinking, but if you're not making it into something material, Because you, you learn so much when something becomes materialized. And I think that works very well in the actual design context. And then you're testing the concepts. So that's what I find interesting challenge. Even though you're not working with design thinking with the aim to make something out of material, how can you still bring this materiality in? Mm -hmm. That's at least for me an important factor in working with design thinking. Like also working with, uh, with startups. You have to start with something small and tangible that you can present to clients, investors, stakeholders. And how can you use design thinking to make that prototype, that minimal viral product. So that's what I see. An interesting twist on that, um, the use case you just described, is the minimum viable product isn't intended to be sold. It's designed to learn. Exactly. Yes. So I think that's a, a unique aspect and something that I really appreciated. I really like the way that the startup community has embraced whether you want to call it lean startup or, you know, the business model canvas, uh, Osterwalder and, and Steve Blank and those folks, people who've been able to take this concept of design thinking, apply it to the startup world so that you can reduce 
the cost of failure and speed up the learning. I think if you can accomplish those two things, you know, your first product is off to a great start. I think it was Mark Andreessen who suggested that if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, then you've waited too long to ship it. Hmm. You should actually be mortified at showing this thing to other people hmm. because it's, you know, wrapped in duct tape or glue or, you know, uh, literally or metaphorically, you know. And uh, Jeffrey, you've been uh, learning design and, and you try to implement it in your day-to-day -day yeah. job. For you, what is the core principle that you know, resonate the most with, with you and your, your profession? Well, one of the core principles is to bring it into, into your culture, in the military culture. And when I was teaching, you have the military culture of planning. And planning to a deliverable in a linear way. And when you have products, you're going to solve the problem as if the problem has been frozen and then you achieve victory. But if you, the first thing was to take it back to the essence of planning, as Eisenhower already said, plans are worthless, but planning is everything. Planning in itself is a learning process. When you bring that up, you bring that into the light and design in itself is not necessarily uh, in a military process, the deliverable because the design as learning process The outcome is already very valuable and contributes to a bigger whole. I, I really agree with that perspective. One of the ways that we teach design uh, to be valuable is to show that in something like a radical innovation project where the outcome is very uncertain, a huge amount of the value is delivered by the capability development of team members and their ability to leverage that across insights, new problem perspectives and new solutions that are maybe thinking about it as this unknown space that you kind of navigate through, but in that are developing your skills, your organization, and also the portfolio of possible problems and possible solutions. Yesterday, Ben Svabelson, Nathan Schroeder, and I were um, teaching an introduction to uh, design thinking for um, 18 majors from uh, Danish defense. And Ben mentioned that for him, design thinking is a methodology or an opportunity to reflect about ourselves in a complex adaptive system. So would you say that this is for you the core of design thinking in your profession? What I really want to get into is not necessarily the what, the methodology or the outputs or the language within it. I want to talk at, at that more abstract level, the epistemological, of why and how are groups of humans doing design? And it, it, what is the nature of that? their intent. And what I think is that militaries and security organizations, whether it's local law enforcement, a drug cartel, or a terrorist group, now some obviously are stakeholders that we don't want to be having security and others do, but it's all about the monopoly of violence in order to impose uh, and govern human behaviors. Militaries are the clients for all commercial design endeavors, software, architecture, advertising. You pick the militaries and security organizations are consumers of these things. But militaries don't do design in a commercial sense. Think about a JDAM, which is a, a guided uh, bomb that uh, essentially swims through the air using fins. And, and it's a miraculous, amazing, destructive, horrifying modern weapon system. And it was designed. It was using a combination of industrial and human-centered design, software design, all these different things. And it was advertised, using advertising design, of course, and sold to the military. Now, you also have uh, tear gas, right? It's used everywhere. That also had all those same, same things done. Security organizations consume these products. Where is the distinction? The distinction is the commercial design orientation at a epistemological level is to produce more and more products or user experiences of which are things between JDAMs and tear gas. But it's not on the commercial design methodology on how those are employed. It's the application of violence. I can't underemphasize the point of that the application of organized violence or war, 
This is a, a very, very dynamic security context of which security forces are in. And they're trying to make sense of the world. Going back to what Jeff said, they want to plan in a linear, causal, reverse-engineered, methodological way of planning. And it's not working above the tactical or the technological level. And they are buying lots and lots of consumer products that are delivered by really good commercial design methodologies. But where the militaries are really struggling is how do we properly apply the application of violence? It's interesting you talk about the monopoly of violence, uh, more forward-looking strategy papers that have come out of at least U.S. Special Operations Command. Talking about influence is actually being the corner of the realm. And from that perspective, would you see more overlap from civilian design applied to act to influence through whether it be behavior modification or these sort of nudge behavioral economics approaches to getting people to behave differently? Or do you think that truly the application of violence is the single game in town for the military? So when I say application of violence, the implication there is if we really get into brass tacks, it's, it's sometimes the influence or the suggestion or the ability to use. So a great example is when you're driving your vehicle or riding your bicycle, if you're here in Copenhagen, and you see a police officer at the corner. Most of us aren't hardened criminals and worried that the police officer is, is got an arrest warrant from Interpol and is ready to get us. But even those people are still under the, the influence of the application of violence. Normally, for most people, it still governs our behaviors. And if you're driving recklessly, it's going to change your behavior or it's going to cause a reaction. And so the militaries are doing this when they're doing, say, uh, outreach, humanitarian assistance, all these non-lethal activities. Violence here is not necessarily the application, but it goes into the influence. And where we're moving in the 21st century, which I think is a really fascinating and highly challenging area, artificial intelligence, machine learning, cyber, virtual reality. If a human being who's participating with other human beings that are also in that cyber virtual reality, if something is done in there, which then causes that person to do something in the real world here that has tangible military outcomes, where do we say that the violence occurred? Can you have that violence in cyber? Can artificial intelligence be responsible for that application of violence? Can someone who's doing a commercial design activity directly relate into the application of violence for a military? And these are some of those squishy gray areas where we go, wait a minute, that's not what we do. Each design field sometimes gets locked into their epistemological choices, and they sort of become unaware of the other types of design going on in this complex reality. And the danger there becomes when someone becomes single design minded, there's only one way to do design. And it's the design I was taught or it's the design my company does, which, by the way, you're more than willing to purchase. So this is where I get a little bit critical, maybe skeptical, too is that there are a lot of ways of doing design, but the question only goes back to those epistemological and ontological choices. Why and how are we doing design? What would be your, your answer to this question? Why should engineers do design? Interesting that we're in the military context, because one of the things that we treat pretty explicitly at DTU and in the design education is that the primary guiding purpose for the education of engineers and the education of designers is to make the world better, Typically, also prioritizing sustainability goals uh, and also considering the ethics in which we're operating as designers, being that we have a huge potential to change the context in which people live. Um, so usually we're very careful to frame everything. Well, indeed, we are always very careful to frame everything towards a positive outcome where we know that side effects cannot always be predicted. The co-creation is an absolutely essential part. So this is where the, I think the empathetic side of design thinking is quite important in that you can never just ask people to change without really deeply understanding their worldview and why they behave in the way they behave 
And there are many mechanisms for changing behavior, but these cannot be just fired off. It's too easy to change people's behavior in, in many ways. Practitioners who are out there in the world designing experiences for other people as if that was their purview, right? Like the ego involved there is an interesting topic to dig into. And I know Ben and, and Jeff, maybe you have ex- experience in this and that. I remember you telling a story in particular kind of about uh, doing design in Afghanistan, but guess who was not in the room? The Taliban. The Afghans. The Afghans, right? Because of classification, which in itself becomes uh, a barrier that the military organization is using to be more bureaucratic, to be to risk reduce, to converge, to gain efficiencies and, and all those things. And now it's actually working against the very thing that we're trying to do, which is be creative, be innovative, be imaginative, be a game changer for the military context. Be empathetic, right? Be, be able to... <laughs> yeah. 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 And from my experience, that also this brings a critical mess. What, what I saw in, in, in teaching in the Netherlands, soldiers are pretty much intellectual authors, and they see when you start talking about ontology, epistemology, you need, well, you need to put on your cloaking device and then go forward with them. But if you bring in civil partners, if you bring in other people in your design class, in your design group, and you start chasing views, you incorporate them, then it's easy to open yourself up and say, hey, it's got added value. And then that was pretty much forming a critical mass to move forward. If not, then, well, you, 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 you bounce up until the opinions people already have and it needs to be an experience as well. And from that perspective, co-creation is, is a very important one. And that's perhaps a, a limit for the military. It's very difficult to co-create with your, your enemy. Uh, I remember um, Alex Ryan, who's a design expert uh, now based in, in Toronto, saying that the Dockery only owns when uh, there was a, a co-creation uh, process with the FARC in Colombia. And they were able to do this co-creation process uh, with them uh, by phone because they were in, in jail. And they were able to participate to the, uh, the process. Mm-hmm. That. Yeah, you need to bring in them as well. Uh, also your so-called opposing forces. To whose opinion are they opposing? Are they opposing to me? Somebody else, it's their solution. Mm-hmm. So it would be very unwise not incorporate their position, their views, and uh, those things. That's, that's a very important one. Yeah. I was just interested in what you were saying about civilian design thinkers you were calling. It's, it's interesting for me to learn about this difference between the civilian view and, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, it's just an interesting point to learn. It's okay, you have to civilian designers. And I think it's interesting that we just had this discussion about the pay. Maybe they are in a position to incorporate the views of, in this case, the Afghanistan people. But then it's like, okay, how do you then, as a civilian designer, how can you still sell your products, the client. So I think there's something interesting there about okay, what is the position that design companies have because, because you're opposing uh, all these tools that we can use in the military and they don't always know to which end they create it. And this goes into nonlinearity and emergence. Yes. The emergence yeah. challenge is, is on both sides. Going back to the tear gas and the JDAM, we don't design a better JDAM. Now we may ask because we are the clients. We may ask for these different things. So if an organization that's, that provides JDAM development, they can go and now do that commercial process of saying, hey, is this even feasible? Let's prototype. Well, we know you asked for that, but here's something better. Now, the consequences, a complex adaptive system, a new product that a commercial designer introduces is going to radically change the market into different ways. So the cars, the automobiles uh, that provided us this incredible new way of transporting, it also brought about, indirectly, a huge rise in automobile deaths. Hmm. Because before automobile deaths, you had other types of deaths and accidents. So now you have this challenge in America. You know, there's tens of thousands of people that die on our highways every year. But there's not really any outrage because we tolerate that. We tolerate a certain number of opioid deaths. We tolerate a certain number of alcohol deaths. 
cancer deaths, and now automobile deaths. And we're fine with that. Now, let's say that this movement for driverless technology in the next 20 years, 30 years, all vehicles are artificial autopilot. Human beings don't drive anymore, Hmm. which now suddenly plummets those accidents down to near zero. Essentially, nobody dies in a car accident, right? Which sounds great. However, what's the emergent potential that may actually kill more people in that world? And we don't know what it is. So I'll just I'll throw out a, a wild speculation. People that are now consumed with living in a virtual world and are using their devices as they're in these cars because they don't drive anymore. Something is happening in that world, which then causes them to feel despair. Because we're already seeing that human despair in first world countries and in industrial countries right now is at the highest level ever recorded. And there are more suicides and there are more mm-hmm. opioid addictions and there are more drug related deaths. Is that correlating? And if so, is that a consequence that we're not really aware of in this new cyber technology, uh, socially connected, constructed world? And there, You're okay. saying that I'm going to get my commute time back, but yes. then I'm going to increase my despair levels because <laughs> I get three hours back you know, per week, whatever. I think that's a leap. But at the same time, I'll give you, we'll go down this path. What if you know, the emergent security risk is if you've got networked automated mobility, uh, highly technologically capable, enabled non-state actor all of a sudden can do a massive hijack of your communication system and cause not one car accident or not the 10 to 40,000 or whatever the number is per year, but instead smash every single car into each other all at once. I think there's zero resilience sometimes in some of these newer systems because if you've never faced that threat before, if you've never seen it, if you haven't seen it coming, now individual actors that are super empowered or technologically enabled can cause massive chaos. Just to see what the group thinks about this is you describe the, our client is a cup company. They want a better cup or another cup or a different cup, a cup, right? <laughs> we know cupness is going to come at the end of this thing, right? Versus this more open-ended, hey, what might be all the ways in which people might stay hydrated, right? Pushing the future out, thinking about the more abstract, higher level considerations of hydration and human requirements. I think there's a third way of thinking about design, and those are two very valuable ways of doing design. Militaries, I think, at least in the form that I see it being practiced, is equally interested, if not more so, in not how to make a better cup or not how to help people stay hydrated, but how might we put a mirror up against ourselves as an organization and think about how we might need to evolve and think differently about human hydration. So the design itself is of the self. You're designing or reimagining your own relationship to cupness or hydration. And I think that's a fascinating twist on the design discussion and that almost everybody wants to affect the world through new products and new services and new conceptualizations of experiences, et cetera. And oftentimes it's a commercial or a profit motive behind them. And it's even better if we can align it with sustainability goals mm. and increasing net joy and reducing net suffering in the world. I believe in all of this. At the same time, I am fascinated by the idea of applying design to the self at the individual team and organizational levels. Yeah, I think what makes it interesting, like they have this whole design your life course, but it's done for what's doing this. I've seen it working very well for individuals, but when you look at more organizations, like how do you get them ever into such a mode? So I think that makes it very interesting. It's like, okay, can you really use it as like some self-improvement? Because that, that's a bit what it comes down to in the end. We have a lot of self-improvement techniques that are more based on quick fixes and then designers should bring in something more substantial, something more reflective. But it's, again, it goes very strategic. If already like the, the, the great leaders don't want to accept that we're bringing in design to deliver a product, how do we ever convince them that we can bring in design to reflect on themselves? And then the more you get to, okay, processes, okay, the process that also going to include me. In theory, that works very well. Like, okay, we can design everything, like also processes and mindsets. And But how do you implement that in different contexts? 
I'm not really sure if like the designers of Field has an answer to that. Yeah, actually, so I wanted to respond to that. Most of our engagement with organizations, when we're teaching them design thinking, like they're competent, they know how to operationally do something. We're almost exclusively talking with them about design thinking as a strategic tool, as a management level tool, where it's very much about getting an organization to accept flexibility. Like you're never going to do design at operational level if you cannot get a strategic vision that gives space for uncertainty. Well, you won't have the in-house capability. You'll have to continually outsource it, right? Like you'll have to hire design firms to do it for you. Yeah, it's interesting because it's almost the primary thing that we deal with when we're dealing with organizations is getting leaders in, getting the senior management in. Yeah, of course, this is the idea of we want to reach in education. It's like, okay, we can change organizations, but I think we see so often they don't. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And is it because of the design element itself that it worked? Or what is that played in us? In my uh, research around the world, I see a trend in uh, military design that there's a higher number of people who are telling me that in the end, when we start the design inquiry, when we ended the military, we ended with a design concept aimed at changing ourselves because we discovered that we were or something in us was the main or first problem we needed to solve. Is it a trend or a tendency that you see in um, engineering or architecture? Very much. Like a lot of organizations are sort of making statements like, right, this stage, we're going to be 100% carbon neutral, whilst basically doing something that is never going to achieve that end, manufacturing trucks or making cement are produced by that organization for industry is going to be a hundred percent non-animal they they at least envision and in, intend a good direction but within the context of their system it's impossible to really conceive how that's going to happen totally concur from a military perspective i saw it in afghanistan as well we were fighting in our province the approach was more of the same bring in more troops engage the uh, enemy in a more aggressive way bring in heavier weapons and well it didn't help so people were like, ah, we need to do more planning. We need to do more of the same so-called Red Queen effect. Eventually, then the commanders saw as well, I'm losing. What's going wrong here? And then eventually you get a designer's approach, co-creation, on dialogue, looking at your epistemology, on top of how am I thinking? How am I looking at the firm? Is this what we want the situation to be like? And then you see people step aside from the Holy Grail, which is the planning process. And the first step was actually not necessarily throw out the planning process. However, first reflect on yourself and take it from there. Everybody wants to change or wants to change, but nobody wants to change themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Change is horrible. Yeah. yeah. Like breaking down your mental model of how the world works and then throwing that up in the air. I saw a good one I liked the other day. It was kind of making a point. It's not that people are necessarily afraid of the new thing, but they're terrified of letting their old thing go. We've got a letting go problem, not a newness problem, but we've got a letting go problem. I thought that was an interesting twist on it that speaks to our, or what I think is the larger topic issue that we're getting at is one of identity. And, you know, I know the, there's a couple of postmodernists in the room. I'm curious if anyone wanted to weigh in on uh, the role of identity in that. Uh, this will be for another podcast. <laughs> there will be a second episode. We just got to the meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to talk about identity, but I think it is worth mentioning that modern cognitive theory would say that the vast majority of our cognition is not conscious, it's system one. And that's built on, you know, rapid fire processing that requires mental models to be in place. It's a sort of machine learning kind of metaphor. If you're sort of destroying those mental models, that makes 
very effort intensive and very scary and you can't rely on your gut instinct anymore. And that makes sense that the people don't want to change. Like all of their gut instinct is trained in one way. If you suddenly say, hey, it's not like that anymore. Which brings us back to exactly where we started, which was around the role of tolerance of ambiguity and embracing uncertainty as being like a, a differentiating quality between people who thrive in design environments versus people who don't. We actually do this in, in some of our education with military audiences. We just did it yesterday with the Danes. There's this uh, great TV show called Brain Games, and uh, I watched it once with my kids. And there's this uh, great optical illusions they do where you're looking at a, a clamshell, and then there's another one where there's two rectangles. And uh, your brain actually interprets this act, this real information from reality. And as it's processing it and assembling it for your consciousness, sometimes your brain will distort reality to make it make more sense based upon what's, you know, the, the evolution of our, our biological backgrounds. Yeah. But it rarely happens. But when it does, our brains are comprehending a distortion of reality that we don't even realize. And so we illustrate this with the students. We even tell them, take a look at these two rectangles and we're about to superimpose behind it the railroad tracks going off in the distance. Mm-hmm. And you are going to feel that top rectangle getting bigger. It's because it's this biological overriding instinct of the brain that very quickly processed information for survival, which has aided us for tens of thousands of years. But right now, at, at where human beings have been able, because we're, we're clever enough, or maybe too clever, we've created all this technology and all this amazing stuff, but we're able to now manipulate reality in ways that our brains are actually hardwired to go against. And so now the challenge becomes, can we at least become aware of that type one thinking? Because people just go right into this automatic process of thinking all the time, whether they're consuming goods, producing goods, or in war, doing rapid decisions in order to try to achieve some sort of a security objective. Breaking out of that is hard. Exactly what I said, it's so hard to do because it's so much easier to default back to that type one. It's so much easier to believe what your brain is telling you versus what your eyes are actually seeing. I think it's the perfect way to close this podcast. Thanks so much to the participants who uh, really contributed to a very rich conversation. Ben, Phil, Jeffrey, Nathan, and Robin. Just to wrap this up, uh, we started talking about if there are any differences between design principles across professions. Basically, the conclusion is that no, the principles remain almost the same. It's just that the humans and the organizations are different. So we need to find a way to better adapt our design practice across these professions. The ethical aspects are also different. Uh, especially if you compare, for instance, uh, practicing design in a military context in comparison to an engineering context. And also that there are nonetheless byproducts from practicing design from what we observe and reflexivity and also what we see as the turn towards the self and the organization instead of trying to change the environment around us as the main output. So thank you so much for listening. 